Our sermon this morning is entitled, Qualifications for Elders. And we're just going to get right into it. There's a lot, uh, a lot to get into today. I'm going to try to be careful on time. I'm sure my wife will help me out with that. We'll just watch her and she'll point to her watch. And it's time to wrap it up. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and read our text. It will be up on the screen for you. Or if you have a pew Bible, you can find it in a pew Bible. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, <clears throat> so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Please uh, join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We uh, thank you for this time that we have together to uh, study it, to look at it, to meditate upon it, and to apply it to our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, use your word this morning to uh, speak to us, to encourage us, Convict us where we need to be convicted, uh, Lord, and that you would help us to apply this to our hearts and to our lives, that uh, your word might be used to conform us more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ, your Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so as uh, most of you guys probably know, we, we here at James River believe that the Bible teaches that the churches. Churches should be governed by a plurality of elders. So as opposed to uh, some churches might have just a, a single pastor acting as the sole leader of the church. <clears throat> what I, I realize as I look through the use of the word elder and, and overseer in the New Testament, this is certainly not a new concept. Um, you know, this is something that had always been done, even back in Old Testament Jewish life and society that had been carried over. And then in the New Testament, in Acts 4, 6, and 11, we see uh, the apostles being brought before the Jewish elders. And then in Acts 14, we see the apostles appointing elders to, uh, to oversee the local churches and to govern the local churches and to teach in the local churches. Acts fourteen twenty three says, um, "...having chosen for them in every church elders, having prayed with fasting..." They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, so we see this pattern uh, through the Old Testament and the New, Te- New Testament especially, this pattern that's set for us of the early church ordaining elders to uh, govern the, the life of the body of Christ in each local fellowship. And so that's what Paul is writing and, uh, and commanding Titus to do here. This is what you're supposed to do, Titus. You appoint elders 
in every town and every local fellowship of believers so that they can oversee the church. And then Paul lays out the qualifications, and there are a lot of them. I don't know if you noticed, I, I think I counted them up, I think I counted about 18 <laughs> uh, qualifications uh, for elders. And he uses the word elder and overseer in this, in this passage. It seems to be used uh, fairly interchangeably. Um, so a couple of things to note before we get into the qualifications. It's, um, it's pretty evident when we look at the New Testament that uh, the office of elder is reserved for men. And we see this in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, there's, there's no evidence that any female elders were appointed in the New Testament or even the rest of, of early church history. And then second, when Paul outlines the qualifications for elders in this passage and then uh, qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he specifically says if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he gives qualifications for men who want to be elders but no qualifications for women. But the, the most explicit instruction is given in 1 Timothy two eleven to 12 where Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes that a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And so since elders are charged with both of those things, with both teaching and exercising authority in the local church, then it's obvious then that this is a role that, that God's Word reserves exclusively for men. Of course, this is, does not at all mean that women are you know, inferior to men or that they don't have um, a role to play in the church and that, or that they shouldn't serve in the church. It just means that men and women have different roles, right? Uh, God certainly calls women in the ministry, even full-time ministry. So it's not a, a question of whether or not women can or should serve in the church. Of course they should. But it's just a, a question of, of what capacity, of what role they should serve in. And so Paul starts to get into these qualifications. Like I said, there, there are a lot of them. So what are the qualifications for a, a, a church elder? They, they seem to fit into about three categories. Uh, if you look at them, Paul uh, discusses uh, family life, uh, a personal life, and, and ministry life. Most of the qualities are positive, right? But then a few are negative. Like positive, you know, an elder must be this, that, must be the husband of one wife, must uh, be hospitable, a lover of good. So most of them are positive, but then a few are negative. An elder must not be uh, a drunkard or quick-tempered or, or violent. Um, and so we can see kind of the, the gravity or the weight of, of this office the importance of this office by how many godly character traits must be met in order to be considered worthy of it. So we're going to go through these qualities just kind of one by one. Um, and, uh, and as we do, I want to stress that all of these characteristics um, are just marks of maturity for any Christian, young or old, a male or female. And so don't tune out because of the title. Of the, of the sermon, of qualifications for elders, because these things are for all of us. So, uh, so this sermon is for you this morning, whether you uh, aspire to be an elder or not. Um, so the first characteristic of an elder is that, he says, Paul says an elder must be above reproach. What does that mean? Obviously, there are no perfect people. 
Obviously, uh, all of us, every Christian still wrestles with sin. So, I don't, you know, Paul's not talking about an unattainable standard of perfection here. So what does he mean when he says above reproach? Uh, it doesn't, doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that, that no one in the church, or anywhere else for that matter, should be able to bring a valid, reasonable charge of wrongdoing uh, against an elder. They, they shouldn't be able to be, an elder should not be called out and called to account for any shady business deals, uh, wandering lustful looks, cheating on their taxes, road rage, being dishonest or being lazy or insubordinate at work. So the idea here is that everyone from uh, the elder's family to their, to their employer, uh, to their friends and neighbors and, and fellow church members should have little to no legitimate complaint about them, right? any, uh, any legitimate charge of, of anything uh, sinful. To be above reproach basically means that anyone who knows you, who really knows you, would be shocked to discover that you're involved in any kind of sin. I think that's what what Paul means when he talks about the the elder must be above reproach. He must be exemplary. An elder must, the second one here, an elder must be the husband of one wife. There's actually some disagreement as to uh, whether this means that a man who has been divorced can never become an elder. There are some people who believe that, um, that they believe that that's what this verse teaches. But I don't think we should be that strict with the interpretation here of this text. If, if it were to be that strict, technically, because Paul was never married, that would uh, disqualify him from being an elder. It would disqualify anyone who's single from being an elder if they're not the husband of one wife. Um, so I think it would be going too far to say that, to say it precludes single men or that it precludes uh, widowers or even men who have divorced uh, if they've had biblical grounds for divorce, which should be considered on a, a case-by-case basis. Uh, so uh, the, the idea is that Paul's saying to Titus that the elder must be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. And then next he says elders must have children uh, and his children are believers, um, which is another kind of tricky phrase. What does that mean? You know, um, uh, so other translations actually translate that phrase uh, "faithful children." So the ESV translates it uh, "children of believers," but cho- his children are believers. But other translations say "faithful children," who were not accused of debauchery or uh, subor- insubordination. So this raises some potentially difficult questions. I mean. You know, um, I don't know, probably most people won't get this joke. It's kind of a geeky uh, theology joke. But this is more of a potential problem for Baptists than Presbyterians. Some of you guys got that. Most of you probably didn't, but that's okay. Um, So, because, you know, what does that mean? So does this mean that a man who has a son or a daughter who has not yet come to faith, are they disqualified? You know, because they're not believers yet? Um, so the phrase uh, children who believe comes from, from two words in the Greek, uh, techna, which is the word for children, and then pista, which is the word for faith or faithful. And, and the word pista in the Greek, it's an adjective, it's describing the child, and it can mean to have saving faith, but it has kind of a broader semantic range. It can also just mean being reliable or trustworthy. Um, and so just as with the phrase husband of one wife, I think we should be careful about being too strict 
with the interpretation of that phrase that children are believers. Um, obviously, no father can bring about regeneration uh, in, their, in their children. And so I think it would be going too far to say that, you know, unless an elder's children are baptized believers in Christ, then they can't be an elder. The idea here is that an elder must be raising his children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. What Paul is saying here is that you don't want an Eli. Anybody remember Eli? Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, um, I, I just have the passage here. I'll make quick reference to it. In First Samuel, First uh, thir- uh, Samuel three, verses twelve to fourteen, <clears throat> the Bible says that the Lord said to Samuel, "See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli, who was a priest." Uh, uh, in Israel at that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Okay, so I think that's what Paul is talking about here. And then another helpful cross reference is 1 Timothy 3 4 to 5. Paul explains that he says an elder must be, quote, one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So, um, put simply, if the man is not making disciples in his own household, then you don't want him trying to make disciples in the church, right? That's, that's kind of what Paul is saying here. And there's a lot of uh, practical implications, not just for uh, elders or men who want to be elders in a church, but for all fathers. Um, so, you know, the most significant one is something that every father here at James River Community Church should pay attention to. And I would say that it's this, is that family worship is not optional. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A Christian man's household is like a, a mini church. Uh, family worship is not optional. It's commanded over and over again in the New Testament uh, and in the Old Testament as, as well. So, if, so the point, if, if a man is not leading his family in worship and discipling his children, then he's not qualified to be leading the church in worship and making disciples in the church. Uh, so Christians, Christian parents are expected and commanded to disciple their children. And, you know, it just, it, it, I, when I was thinking about this, I thought it just raises the question, if a father comes to believe that Christianity is true but doesn't model it and teach it to his children, does he really believe that Christianity is true? So a Christian father doesn't let his kids make up their own mind about going to church or reading the Bible or praying with the family he brings them up in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that just means that these things are just the way it is. The structures and activities and practices are what are to be considered normal in the house. So a practical ex- an exhortation, if you're, not, if you're a Christian father and you're not practicing family worship at your house, repent. Um, start today. It doesn't have to be long or complicated. Set aside time each day to read one Bible story together, memorize one verse, or sing one song, pray together. The whole thing could take ten minutes, but, but don't neglect it. 
Don't neglect it. And then at the end of the, the last part of the phrase, uh, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Other translations say uh, his children shall be accused of dissipation or rebellion. Again, this goes back to like, like Eli was. He didn't uh, reprove his sons. He did not confront them about their sin or rebuke them for it. If a father is not willing or able to keep his children under, the, under control through the means of godly discipline then how can he be trusted to practice godly discipline in the church? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so, as a general rule, of course there are exceptions, but as a general rule, uh, faithful, obedient children are the product of faithful, diligent parents. And the opposite is also generally true. In general, disobedient, rebellious children are often the result of negligent parents. And again, of course, there are exceptions. There are situations in which parents are truly seeking to do their very best in raising their kids to know and love God, and yet the child still may end up rebelling, as when they, especially when they grow older. Um, but it's just a matter of, of God-ordained priorities. So the point is, is that <clears throat> Christian ministry should never be used as an excuse or justification for a husband and a father to neglect... Yes, Lord? All right. Uh, It's safe. It's safe. Everything's okay. No fire alarms going off or anything like that. Um, So so Christian ministry should not be used as uh, an excuse or justification... Uh, for fathers and husbands to neglect their first ministry, which is to their wives and children. So the truth is is that the best um, husbands and fathers make the best elders. The, the, you know, the, the, the most godly husbands and the most godly fathers will make the most godly elders. We're not looking for men who uh, have made and continue to make little investment in their families so that they can devote themselves to elder responsibilities. We're looking for, uh, the, the church is looking for men who are already loving and shepherding their families well, so that, because they will be the best candidates to love and shepherd the church well. And then, so uh, Paul is about to uh, get into the negative characteristics in verse 7, and must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, but before he does, we see that he repeats this, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He repeats again, you know, overseer must be above reproach. And I just want to um, focus in on the, uh, overseer as God's steward. I think that's a really uh, interesting connecting phrase. An overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And, uh, and then the next word he said, he must not be arrogant, Right? Or other translations say uh, self-willed. Now I think this is Paul does this on purpose because the best way to prevent you to prevent a man from managing his house or the church in a proud, self-styled manner or an arrogant manner is to see yourself as a steward. Uh, you see, so you know, a father of his own children. If I'm a father, if the children are my children and only my children, then I get to parent those children however I want because they're my children. But a steward of God's children, which is how it really is, is that they're not just my children, but they're God's children. A father of God's children must parent 
those children in the way that God has commanded, not however he sees fit, right? And so in the same way, if an elder sees a church as his church, uh, then he's going to tend to do whatever is the most pragmatic or whatever seems best to him or work, work to his advantage. But if an elder sees his position as a stewardship, which is what it is, which is we are God's stewards, we are, we are caring for his church, it's not our church, it's his church, then he's going to be careful to know and carry out God's commands because he realizes that it's not his church he's leading, it's God's church that he's leading. It's God's church that he's sh- shepherding and caring for. And he's going to have to give an account for his stewardship, whether he cared for God's flock his way or God's way, the way that God has commanded. And, uh, and then so next, Paul says an elder must not be uh, quick-tempered. <clears throat> he must not be someone who is uh, quickly angered or easily angered. He, he shouldn't have a, a short fuse. Um, I've, you know, discovered after a number of years as being an elder, being a leader in, in the church is inevitably mean you're going to receive criticism. There's always going to be somebody who's not happy with a decision you made or something you said or the way that you handled a particular situation because it's not the way they would have handled it. Or, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's legitimate. Maybe it's, um, you know, because it was just simply wrong. And so uh, it's very important that an elder not be quick-tempered, that he not have a short fuse. An elder must be able to accept criticism humbly and graciously. And uh, an elder must not be quick to defend himself or, or to get offended. Or even worse, even worse, to take vengeance on someone who has wronged or offended him through his position of authority. All right? An elder must not do that. Um, Paul says he must not be a drunkard. Pretty self-explanatory there, right? Uh, must not be addicted to wine, which is probably the most common addiction of, uh, in Paul's day. Uh, the Bible, is, we can note that you know, the Bible does not condemn drinking wine or alcohol, uh, but it does condemn being under the influence of it. It does, it does condemn uh, getting drunk. Drunkenness is a sin, something that should be avoided, not just by elders, but by any, any and every mature Christian. Um, and so the desire to drink wine must not hold sway over, uh, over an elder, over a man who uh, aspires to be an elder. He must be able to abstain from it whenever necessary, even if it's just to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And, uh, and then next Paul says, so he must not be arrogant, he must not be quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent. Paul says an elder must not be violent. Or other translations say uh, quarrelsome or uh, a striker or a contentious person. Uh, basically, an elder should not be someone who's looking for a fight. Um, in our uh, meetings, our elders' meetings, I admit that the term theological fight club has been thrown around from time to time, but it's always been in a lighthearted way. I assure you it's never come to blows. Um, but this, this, this is an important characteristic, an elder, because an elder must be a man of conviction, right? Um, on the one hand, 
Uh, an elder should be somebody who is ready and able and willing to defend the truth. We don't want a yes man who just goes along with whatever anybody else says. We want somebody, uh, somebody of conviction, somebody who is able and willing to defend the truth. But then on the other hand, he must not be someone who loves to argue or, or someone who is uh, unnecessarily rough in his speech uh, toward his fellow elders or toward the, the congregation. Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 2, 23-25, when he tells Timothy, Avoid foolish and ignorant debates, for you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be gentle with everyone, able to teach, tolerant, correcting opponents with kindness. And so... An elder must know how to, to pick his battles. He, he must be uh, careful that any debate that he might engage in. There are times that an elder does need to engage in a, in a debate or in a, a controversy of some kind. But if he does, he should make sure <clears throat> that it's not done for the sake of making a point or, or putting someone else in their place, but rather solely out of love for God's Word and God's people. If an elder has to, has to debate in something, it should be because he feels compelled to. He feels compelled to address something out of love for God and, and out of love for the other person. Not because he just wants to make sure his opinion is heard on, on the subject, which is convicting for a guy like me. <clears throat> something that God is still working on in me. And then so then, now we come to the, the last of the negative characteristics of an elder. He must not be greedy for gain. Or some translations say greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, certainly uh, one of the most dangerous things you could have is somebody who's uh, working at a, uh, at a church um, for, uh, for monetary gain or, you know, or position or uh, to, to get an advantage for themselves. Um, you know, so an elder is not looking to make a quick buck. They're not looking to make sure things work out for their financial advantage. Teaching and shepherding God's people must be something that they feel called and compelled to do uh, because it's what God has called them to, um, not because of something that they do to line their pockets or make themselves look better. Uh, chasing after these things will inevitably corrupt a man's heart. That's, uh, Proverbs 28.22 says that a person with an evil eye hurries after wealth. And then 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes that those who, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. So an elder must not be greedy for gain. So then Paul transitions from the negative characteristics back to the positive again. Uh, elder must not be this or that or the other. He, he goes back to from describing what an elder should not be, so then to again describing uh, what an elder should or must, not just should, but must be. And the first positive characteristic is hospitable which in the Greek is interesting. Uh, the word is uh, philozenos, and it literally means loving strangers. Literally, yeah, so that's the, the word for hospitable. The most literal way to put it is a lover of strangers. 
So the man who is qualified to be an elder is the guy who is the first to welcome new people to the church, the first to welcome visitors, the first guy to have a, a block party at his neighborhood when he moves in, invite people over for dinner, uh, say hello and welcome new, new attenders at church. And I thought it was interesting that this characteristic of being hospitable <clears throat> comes right after, um, and, and I would say seemingly in contrast to being greedy for gain. Though not a drunkard, not violent, not, not greedy for gain, but hospitable. And, uh, and I, I think that too is, is on purpose. It's been said that um, people who love people use money and people who love money can tend to use people. The, the more a person loves people, the better use they will make of their money. If you love people, the less likely you'll be to withhold uh, help to others because of what it might cost you because you love people more than you love uh, money. Um, a while back, this brought up a memory as I was studying it. A while back, I had taken Luke to a, a birthday party at a friend's house. And uh, the family was really nice, and um, they, were, they were generous to everybody there. They provided food and drinks for the party. Um, but I'll never forget something that was said while we were there by, the, uh, by one of the guys because of the context in which it was said. The, the owner of the house, it was a very large house, and, um, and they had you know a boat, uh, a travel trailer, a pool, Several other large toys uh, 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 sitting around his uh, large property. And over the course of the conversation, um, we discovered you know, that, that he had uh, two kids. And at one point, somebody asked him if he and his wife were going to have any more, any more children, if they planned to have any more children. And his answer was, oh, no, I can't afford any more kids. Right? And, and then um, in contrast to that, I just it immediately brought to mind another family that I knew. And this family also had a, a fairly large house, but otherwise they lived quite simply. And they have adopted six children and are raising them all in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're raising them as their own kids. They've adopted, they had no children of their own, but they adopted six. And they've used uh, their, their money to adopt kids. And so, of course, it's not, the point is that it's not that it's wrong to own nice things. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. But it's good for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, have my possessions been well used in the service of God and of others? Or have the things I have wanted kept me from serving others more and being more hospitable? So an elder must not be Greedy for gain, he must be hospitable. And moving on to the next couple of traits, an elder must love what is good. He must love what is pure and holy and virtuous. He must be someone who is committed to loving what God loves. And then the next, in the ESV, the word is translated self-controlled. This is, uh, the word, um, is, it could also be translated sensible. And we're going to see in the next sermon, I think, or maybe two sermons from now, this is one of Paul's favorite words in this letter because he uses it in chapter 2 over and over again. The word in Greek is sophron, and um, it's used over and over again. You know, uh, when he talk, In chapter 2, he talks about older men must be this, younger men must be that, older women must be this, younger women must be that. 
And he uses this word to describe all of them, all of the, all of the categories. Self-controlled or sensible. And, um, and the word in Greek, really, what it, the most literal way to put it is having an inner outlook which regulates outward behavior. Being able to curb your own desires and impulses because you have uh, this inner outlook. It describes biblical moderation, a man who doesn't command himself, but instead is himself commanded and regulated by God. It, it, it really means having a Christian worldview. Having a Christian worldview, which is something that it shouldn't be taken for granted because a lot of professing Christians today don't truly have a Christian worldview. They might say that they do, but it doesn't come out in the way that they live. They might say they believe the Bible commands them to dis- disciple their children, but they don't practically do it. Um, you know, they, uh, they may say that they believe that church membership is important, but they're not members of a church anywhere. Um, and then there's little shepherding that takes place, and they, they go from church to church with little to no accountability. So having a, an inner outlook which regulates outward behavior, having a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, letting the Bible rule your life and inform how you make each decision and then form the actions that you take is what Paul is talking about there. And he says an elder must be uh, upright, or another, uh, some translations say just, just doing the right thing. Someone who, who observes law, the law, a person who lives as they all ought to live, a person who is, you know, always does the right thing. An elder must be holy. Uh, that's how it's translated in the ESV, or some translations say devout, meaning dedicated to God, devoted. Uh, Obviously, that's one of the most important things. An elder must be a lover of God. He must be a pious man, a holy man. An elder in a church must be someone who exemplifies worshiping God continually and someone who is devoted, devoted to keeping His commands and doing His will. Um, and it's convicting when I think about this because I think about how much of my life is lived without dependence upon the Lord. When you boil it down, an elder should be engrossed in mainly two things, which is studying and teaching the Bible and, and prayer. Um, the work of an elder in, in, in teaching and leading and shepherding God's people is just simply impossible without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so an elder must be devoted to God first. An elder must be holy. He must be set apart. He must be... Uh, a man of God. And then, um, lastly, Paul says an elder must be disciplined. And just so meaning, you know, to be disciplined means to be strong in something, becoming a master of something. Um, it's the idea that, you know, you think about an athlete or, uh, or a, a soldier, someone who is trained and is training themselves, disciplining themselves. So, it seems to like complete what Paul is saying when he first starts. He says, you know, sensible uh, or uh, self-controlled, having a, a Christian worldview, having an inward reality that, that regulates your outward behavior, and not only having that, but also working at it, being, being disciplined, making effort in it, uh, practicing the spiritual disciplines. So it should be obvious to everyone that not only does an elder have a Christian worldview, but that he's practicing that Christian worldview and he's dedicated to it, that he, that he practices what he preaches. 
He must be disciplined. And then lastly, Paul goes back to the foundation of it all. Uh, He says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and then also rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, So we see here, you know, offense and defense. That's what an elder's job is. An elder plays offense and an elder plays defense. He's, He's always on the offensive, as in he's teaching, encouraging, exhorting people, training people. And then he's also on the defensive. He's answering people. He's correcting people. Even uh, confronting and rebuking people when necessary. And explaining things to people. He must be able to teach from the Bible correctly. As well as discern when something that someone else says is unbiblical. So this means he needs to know not just what he's teaching... You know, for that day or that week or, or whatever, but he needs to also know how it fits in with the rest of, of Scripture. Um, so, so that's it. Those are the uh, characteristics that um, that Paul gives. And uh, just on this last, well, bef- before I, I close, before I conclude, I think it's worth taking a few minutes when we study passages like this. To recognize not only what's written here, but maybe just take a second to recognize what's not written here. Notice that this entire section says uh, nothing about a man being charismatic, uh, like like having a certain charisma, or being a you know a, a natural leader or a great speaker, or has you know. Um, or being a, a good businessman, or a particularly gifted administrator, or being uh, cool or popular. It says nothing of that. Um, when it comes to appointing leaders in the local church, the Bible places little to no value upon being able to captivate an audience. Right? And yet, sadly, that's often what is thought of as most important, and even taught to be, most important in some professing Christian circles today. I remember when I was when I was working on my degree uh, in Christian ministry, I took a class on preaching, and well, to just be honest and blunt, it was pretty bad. <laughs> um, one of the things I remember hearing over and over throughout the class was that the most important part of the sermon was the first five minutes. And the, the teacher kept saying, you want, you want the people in the audience saying to themselves, I'm so glad I came today. I'm so glad I came today. And the, the class really taught little to nothing, at least that I can recall, of, of the proper understanding and explaining of the text of Scripture. Instead, it seemed to be geared more toward making sure that people were impressed and that the, the, the preacher's message kept their attention and piqued their interest. Well, that's not what Paul says here. That's, the, that's not a qualification for being an elder. Qualification is you have to hold firm to the trustworthy word. You have to know the word. You have to be able to teach the word. And so a good sermon is not recognized based on how it makes you feel or, or whether it's filled with good, uh, memorable stories. The, the, the most important and foundational question is, does it properly explain the, the text? Does it teach the Bible? And if it doesn't do that, then the sermon's a flop. Uh, no, no matter what other good qualities are there. Um, so, in conclusion, I'll go back to what I said before. 
Uh, don't write this message off. This message is, is, is for you, even if you're not looking to uh, become an elder. And I want to give a couple reasons for that as I, as I conclude this morning. Um, first, the first reason that, that, you know, don't say to yourself, this is for elders and so it's not for me. Um, there's reasons that we should give care and special attention to these things. And the first reason is, is that these qualities, again, they don't describe just an elder, but a mature Christian in general, um, which we are all called to be. So we could even, you know, we could go back through this list and cross-reference each quality and see that these things are for all of us. Are elders called to be good husbands? Well, Ephesians 5 says that, that all, husband, all Christian husbands are to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church. Are elders supposed to be uh, godly fathers? Well, Deuteronomy 6 that says that all, dis- all fathers are to disciple their children. Do elders have to be humble and patient and self-controlled and, and free from greed? Well, Philippians 2, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 6 say, all say that all Christians are to possess those qualities. And so all of us are called to be godly spouses, parents who actively disciple their kids, people who are exemplary in our lives, who, who, whose lives um, you know, display and, um, and confirm, affirm the gospel that we proclaim. All of us are called to be God's stewards, not selfish, not quick-tempered, not greedy, but hospitable, sensible, just, devout, and disciplined. <clears throat> All of us, even, are to know our Bibles and to be able to teach others, at least to some degree, whether it's uh, even just friends or, or our children or whoever it may be, whoever God brings into our life. All of us, like I would think of you know, 1 Peter where he says, always be ready to give an answer. To, to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. So all of us are to possess these, these qualities. These are just qualities of a mature Christian. And then secondly, the other reason that this, that this uh, text is for all of us is because it's the responsibility of church members to know and practice these things so that they can hold their elders accountable to these standards also. So... You know, we have elders in our church that have retired or are about to retire, and we have uh, need of new elders to be put in place, and every member of James River has a part in that. Every member of James River Community Church is going to have a part in that, and so this is a message for all of us. And finally, uh, Paul says later in, in Titus 2 that this is what our Lord Jesus died for. He died and rose again to redeem us from every lawless deed, Paul says, and, and to purchase for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. And so these are qualifications and requirements for elders in God's church. And I just want to close with the charge that Paul gave um, to the early churches in Acts uh, chapter 20, because I think it just puts it uh, really well. And it's a charge to us as elders at James River Community Church. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Let's pray together.
Lord, it's, uh, it's humbling to be um, called to watch over and care for your people. And I pray for myself and for all of the brothers who are elders at this church. Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your wisdom. Um, we need your spirit, Lord, to be at work in us and through us. Lord, uh, we, it's, impo- it's an impossible job to look after your people in and of ourselves, Lord. It's just simply impossible. And so we ask for grace and we ask for, for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I pray uh, for all the members of our congregation, Lord, that we would, that all of us would grow in these qualities, that all of us would, would grow to be more humble and patient, uh, not greedy, um, that all of us would be self-controlled and sensible and disciplined in, uh, in the life that you have called us to, pursuing you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.